0: This word that I'm bringing to you this morning was uh, pretty much revolutionary for my faith when I first started to grasp it. It was like a light bulb moment of revelation about the gospel, the good news of Jesus. And so I hope um, this morning as I share this word that uh, the Holy Spirit will be ministering his life-giving spirit to you. Because I think it will change your understanding about your part in God's kingdom. I'd also like to encourage you to have a Bible with you, if you can. I've put a few of them around, and they may not be enough, but if you're interested in looking along with me, please open up to 1 Corinthians 15, because I'll be referring to it quite a bit, and some of them I won't have on the slide. But if you prefer to listen, that's absolutely fine as well. When I was a teenager, I went to a pretty average, or some would Uh, say, below-average state school in Dandenong, which now no longer exists. Uh, It was a very multicultural school with people from a huge range of religious, cultural and social backgrounds. Now, this wasn't anything new for me, but as I grew in my confidence in my Christian faith and started putting my Christian identity out there more and more, I quickly realised the opposition to Christianity. There were times when I was ridiculed for my faith in group contexts. Times when I was teased for always trying to do the right thing. Uh, There were times when teachers mocked and derided a Christian worldview in favour of their scientific worldview. And I'm sure a lot of you can relate to this in some way. We've all experienced, directly or indirectly, our society's ridicule of us Christians. And the reality is that owning a Christian identity in our culture and in our context today, in our non-Christian families, in our workplaces, and our social and recreational circles, is, it's really hard. People just assume the worst of us. And maybe the temptation is to wonder whether it's all worth it, whether this faith of ours is worth the rejection, the sidelining, the marginalisation. And also whether our efforts in ministry and supporting our church's mission and outreach and trying to be like Christ in the world is all worth it too. And maybe that experience isn't quite yours. Maybe, Maybe you wonder whether giving yourself more fully to Christ's cause, making known his beauty and love is really worth sacrificing more for. Maybe it's all in vain because sin and evil and suffering just seem to be winning. And we don't feel like we're getting anywhere as Christians. While Paul in this chapter of 1 Corinthians 15 is addressing this kind of thinking in the Corinthian church. And he wants them to know that their faith in Jesus is far from a mere fairy tale. It's far from simple, wishful thinking. He wants them to know the very real here and now reality of the victory of the cross. And nothing can make this clearer than the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. Which means that none of their work for the Lord will ever be in vain. So I'm going to be talking about the four C's of the victory of the cross this morning. And the first one is that the victory of the cross is conclusive. It's conclusive because Jesus' resurrection actually happened. And it's the resurrection that makes all the difference for Christianity. Paul says in verses 14 and 17, If Christ was not raised, then our preaching is useless, and so is your faith. And then you're still guilty of your sins. Without the resurrection, we've got a very small view of what Jesus did on the cross for the world. Without the resurrection, death hasn't been defeated, and redemption remains foiled by what Paul describes as this last enemy, death. And in fact, Paul says in verse 19 that if we don't have a faith that accounts for the resurrection, he says we are of all people most to be pitied. And the message translation puts it like this If all we get out of Christ is a little inspiration for a few short years, We're a pretty sorry lot. Well, the early church and the church throughout history has held that the victory of the cross has been about Jesus' death for our sins, but also about his death and resurrection as the victory over death for all of us. This is the gospel. This is the good news. And it's good news not only because we have forgiveness of sins, although as Andrew reminded us last week, this is pretty awesome, but the good news is so much bigger than this because we've been promised a life without sin and death. A life of existence without the enemies of God, without the forces of death and evil opposing God's world, opposing his creation and opposing our lives. So my second point is that the victory of the cross is comprehensive There's nothing that is untouched or unaffected by the resurrection and I want to unpack this quite a bit. In verse 20, Paul says that Jesus' resurrection is the first fruit or the proof that we will also be raised. Now, if I had time, I'd go into this in quite a bit of detail, but I don't, so I just want us to notice a couple of things in this chapter. In verses 12, 13 and 16... Paul's saying that if you don't believe in a general resurrection, in the general resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. In other words, it's inconsistent to believe in one without the other. It's inconsistent to believe in Jesus' physical resurrection if you don't also believe in our physical resurrection. And later in this chapter, from verses 35 all the way through to the end, Paul explains in great detail that our resurrection is of a physical nature, that we will be resurrected in bodily form, that it will involve an alteration or a changing of our bodies so that we will bear the image of Jesus. And you can see that in verses 49 to 52. And Paul gives us an image or an idea, a metaphor of of what this is kind of like. He uses the, the idea of a seed, that's sown in the ground it is changed and it's altered to become like a tree and he also we can also think about Jesus resurrected body being kind of like his human body like he could eat and people could touch him and people could put their scars his their hands touch his scars from his crucifixion but his resurrected body was also a bit different and we know that some people couldn't recognize him straight away. And so just like Jesus' resurrected body was the same but different, so it will be for us. And so there's this sense that there's continuity between our existence now and our existence after Jesus returns when we are resurrected. And so if we are resurrected in a physical way, death really is not. The last word for us. Death is not our end. Death is not the end. Now the significance of Jesus' resurrection extends not only to those belonging to Christ but also as we see in verse 24 to the destruction of all dominion, authority and power and the destruction of the last enemy, death. Death is both a symbol And the reality of the consequence of sin and separation from God. But death also represents the opposition to life. Now, have you ever wondered what life would actually be like without death? Just have a think for a moment. I reckon most of you are probably thinking of like a heavenly kind of realm, spiritual kind of existence. But what about physical embodied life without death? Can you picture that? It's really hard, isn't it? (laughs) We're so accustomed to death being a normal part of life, aren't we? We see suffering and destruction all around us. Hatred corruption, evil, horror, war, crime, injustice, pain, disease, decay, hurt, but what would our world look like without these? A world without death. What a wonderful thing to consider and this is what Paul is trying to get this group of Christians to actually start to grapple with and think about because this faith isn't just fairy tale imaginings. It's not wishful thinking. This is the promise of the death and resurrection of Jesus. This is the victory of the cross. This is God's goal for history. Without the resistance and opposition of these powers to Christ's lordship, without death opposing the purposes of God for life, Life can flourish as God intended. We have the promise of a reality no longer impacted by the force of death. This is good news. No more crime and injustice and oppression. No more war. No more pain. No more sickness or disease. No more evil. No more death. No more opposition to God's goodness and love and life. And so as it says in verses 54 to 55, Paul says, Death has been swallowed up in victory. Where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? Jesus' death and resurrection has secured the fate of death and therefore has secured the renewal and the recreation of life where creation is made right as God intended, where earth is reunited with heaven. And just in case we haven't grasped how comprehensive the victory of the cross is, I just want to take us to another one of Paul's letters, to Romans 8, verse 21. And I've got it up on the slide. It says that the creation itself will be set free from the bondage to decay, in other words, the bondage to death, and will obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. So there's a cosmic scope to the victory of the cross. All creation will be set free from death. This is important because God actually cares about our physical reality. It's not just done away with and we enter into a heavenly and spiritual realm. But rather the Bible talks about a new heavens and a new earth. God cares about our physical world so much so that the Son of God took on flesh and by his death and resurrection began this process of new creation which will ultimately be fulfilled at his return so that as we see at the end of verse 28 God may be all in all. See the victory of the cross is all-inclusive. Nothing is left untouched by it. My third point that I want to make is that the victory of the cross is currently active. If we look at verses 24 to 26, it says, Then the end will come when he hands over the kingdom of God to the Father after he has destroyed all dominion, authority and power, For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. And we know that we are living under the reign of Christ now. These verses also tell us that during this reign, Jesus is actively putting all his enemies under his feet. He is destroying all dominion, authority and power and death. And so if Jesus reigns now and is defeating death now, the victory of the cross is active now. Now, some of you may have seen this kind of image before. And it's just helpful to get a sense of the overlap of the ages. When Jesus came to earth, represented by the cross, when he died on the cross and was raised, he initiated, he inaugurated his reign. We talk about his kingdom being now and not yet because we live in this tension in the current age which is still marred by sin We live in this tension between this age and the age to come. But when Christ returns with the downward arrow, we will be resurrected and brought into the age to come, into the new heavens and the new earth. And these verses in 1 Corinthians 15 tell us that in this present age, Jesus is contending with the forces that oppose him, but with the certainty of their ultimate defeat. Because Jesus reigns in grace, displayed through the cross, and not in raw power, it is through grace that Jesus is overcoming his enemies. And this is where we come in. So my final point then is that the victory of the cross is exercised in and through his church. Look at verse 57. After Paul has given us this big picture of the victory of the cross, From the cosmic realm to us, Paul urges the Corinthian church to be thankful because it says he gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. See, the victory of the cross is not only Jesus' victory, but our victory. Elsewhere in the New Testament, for example, in Romans 5.17, Paul describes the church, that is the people who receive God's abundant grace, In Christ. He describes them as reigning in life through Christ or as exercising dominion in life through Christ. Jesus' death on the cross and resurrection has now transformed our lives into symbols of the kingdom of Christ, symbols of the victory of the cross, and symbols of the recreation of life. This is why our current age is also known as the age of the church. Because God invites us to participate with Christ in his work and mission. His mission of restoring people to fullness of life through the gospel of Jesus Christ. His mission of subduing death and evil that would oppose his goodness. And his mission of bringing all things under the lordship of Jesus Christ. And so at the end of this chapter, in verse 58, Paul urges the church to stand firm. Stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord because you know that your labour in the Lord is not in vain. So friends, do you hear the power of these words for you? Don't let the discouragement of the world move you. Don't let it knock your faith about. Stand firm in this faith, this victory of the cross, this gospel, this good news. It's real. It's real here and now. And whatever you're doing for the Lord, whether you're investing in the lives of your children and grandchildren and teaching them God's ways, whether you're trying to be a light in the world for Christ in your workplace or your school, whether you're serving the needy or the sick, whether you're studying in pursuit of God's calling on your life, whether you're praying for the needs of this community and this world, or whether you're serving here in the ministry of this church, keep giving yourselves fully to it because it's not in vain. Your ministry is filled with the power and the intent of the victory of the cross. You are part of God's purposes. You are part of God's goal for history. Amen.